0: Welcome to Full Stack Business Owner. Today, we're talking about the latest news and how it's important for Australian business owners. And if you're not already, make sure you're on the newsletter. The newsletter is designed to enhance your full stack of skills to build wealth inside and outside of your business. So go to fullstackbusinessowner.com slash newsletter and go and put in your details to get notified every single time we come out with a new episode. Now, Charlie, before we get into the episode, let's cue your infamous disclaimer.
1: Charlie here from Full Stack Business Owner. I need to let you know that Grant, myself, and the Full Stack Business Owner team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice or pick investment products. We highly encourage you to seek out and engage the use of professionals when making financial decisions or comparing investment products.
0: All right, Charlie, first cab off the rank, turning to work in the office. Is it making a comeback? Now, this is like this little delicate dance, right? So legally, employers weren't able to force employees to come into the office. But recently, that has been removed. But with the current challenges in the labor market, how many actual companies want to do this, right? If you push too hard, people will leave. But in the news, we're actually seeing Apple's forcing employees to come back three days a week. They've just delayed it. You've got Tesla forcing everyone to return to the office with Musk saying things like everyone at Tesla is required to spend a minimum of 40 hours in the office per week. If you don't show up, we will assume you have resigned. (laughs) And then he's also said, the more senior you are, the more visible your presence must be. His (laughs) tweets are amazing by the (laughs) way.
1: I love the one is you can
0: work from home after you've worked 40 hours a week in the office. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, it's, it's serious, but you've also got like <laughs> Google spending one point four billion dollars on a building in London to try and attract ten thousand people into the office, and obviously we know that they do what their infamous table tennis and meals and activities and games and all those kind of things. So, Charlie, is this is this the real thing? Like, is everyone going to start pushing back people into the office?
1: You know, what's interesting here, I, w- I want to tell a story about uh, something completely different, but I think this sets the scene here that is huge, right? So. Um, Have you ever noticed with like uh, Shopify themes that the add to cart button and I think it's like the purchase button are all in the same place? Always, yes. Do you know how they decided that was the place? No. Yeah, so this is like I can't believe this. I did a conversion rate optimization course many, many years ago and what had happened is eBay had put the button there And they realized that if they modeled what the other, what the big names eBay was doing on the smaller sites, they would convert dramatically better. But if sites had the add to cart button or the purchase button in a different area, like it wouldn't do as well. So what tends to happen over time, and there's so many examples of this, is that once one of the big names starts to set something as the standard, everything else starts to be so. Yep. And another really good example of this is podcasting. Like everyone's like, you can't do a video podcast. And then Joe Rogan did one that was successful and then it started to become the way it happens. So now what I find super interesting here is Apple, Google, Tesla, arguably the some of the biggest and most powerful brands in the world. Now that they've set this standard, I think you'll find a lot of other
0: organizations start to follow suit. Yeah. And it, it's funny that you actually mentioned that. The amount of times I've duplicated like e-commerce stores in SaaS world saying, don't try and educate people on something new, just follow what the big guys are doing. And so like that trend happens through and through. But even like on the ground here in Melbourne, like the volume of people at cafes, at lunch spots, at restaurants, like the indicators from what I am seeing Mm -hmm. is that there are a lot more organisations. They don't have to be the big names. And I've looked to see if there are any major Australian big names that are really pushing for this. But the volume of people every week just keeps increasing and increasing. And I I don't know if this is sentiment because businesses haven't had the same throughput or haven't had the same productivity or output that they've expected from employees or that it's more them going, I've got office space. And I need to utilize this office space because I got a lease for another two years. Do you think that we're just seeing like a lagging trend where then when everyone's leases come up, they're just going to be like, nope, not reviewing it. And we're going to see some of that come through. Or do you think that this is a sign of going, nope, uh, we've just seen it a couple of years and everyone's going to come straight back in? I've got a bit of
1: a conspiracy theory. Can we, we go with this?
0: Yes. Yeah. So I want you to imagine, we're just going
1: to use Melbourne as the example here. Right? If you're the city of Melbourne and you've invested all this money in infrastructure, so just think over the years, not just this year, like how much you've put into like uh, public transport, buildings, yep. roads, amenities, like all the things the government spend money on to make the sectors work and then suddenly everyone not using it. So I'm pretty convinced that behind the scenes, there's actually a big government push to get people back to cities Um, because of what it supports because there's a lot of businesses that have really struggled who need people in the city to operate. Heaps. So if you're a cafe in a large uh, office building and you used to have a ton of foot traffic and now it's down to like under 50%, like you're getting crushed at the moment. So when it comes time to renew your lease, it's questionable if you would pay the same for that lease because you don't get the foot traffic. So I think there's a lot of vested interest behind the scenes in getting the cities back to work, and I'm certain there's a lot of conversations we're not privy to that um, are pushing that in a bigger way everywhere. Yeah. So I'm very, very certain on that. The second point I'll make there though is: can you imagine being like Apple and you spent a billion dollars on a headquarters <laughs> and there's no one there?
0: Oh man, go on.
1: Yeah, I would. I would absolutely be wanting to push people into that as well. And I think you really could make the argument in a lot of these like more techno, like technology uh, companies that like being in the same room does have value. It really does. Like some businesses really do thrive, and maybe creative ones or engineering ones or things where you work in a team. I should really like articulate here. Like they do benefit from getting people in the same room. This isn't all uh, businesses, by the way, but it's definitely some of them. So I can see that as a huge advantage here. And like one of the things I'll I'll mention here as well is I heard an interesting uh, comment by someone who used to work in an office quite a bit is saying that one of the things he thinks isn't happening uh, very well in the last two years is that the junior staff they bring on or the new people they bring on aren't being mentored very well or don't have the opportunity to network with other people,
0: um, which they're seeing the ramifications of, which I hadn't considered as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that even with the accounting firm that we use, uh, one of the companies I'm part of, um, like for them, bringing on juniors has been the biggest challenge. So over that two year period, they've actually come to us as a client and said, look, we've had a challenge bringing on new graduates and actually getting them up to speed at the same rate that we used to do it. And so they had people on calls who were like fresh graduates for probably about 12 months, which is like unheard of. Right, they were just on the calls, not really doing anything besides like taking notes, seeing how this kind of reputation is built and how to deliver things to clients and all those kind of things. But they're just like, yeah, to your point, it is taking long, it is taking longer. And uh, so, before we recorded this, I actually did a bit of research to try and validate uh, where does this kind of trend go. So during, during sort wait, of, wait, wait, is work from home over? Is work, no
1: all these Zoom rooms? They're going to end up in people's houses just empty now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes, that is exactly it. Well, it was two. I'm going to tell two stories. So the first one was about 10 years ago, the CEO of BHP, a gentleman called Marius Glopper, he had offices throughout like New York, Australia, et cetera, and Singapore. And he actually had his permanent Zoom room, which was like connected to his main offices in all of these major cities. And he got them built where the backgrounds and everything, all the technology was exactly the same. So that anytime that he ever did a press conference, anytime he ever did a major meeting, anytime he ever did anything, no one knew where he was because it was always the same throughout everywhere. <laughs> and I thought- I dig it. It's got like a, a specific bookshelf or something. Yeah, I dig it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that, that was him, albeit he was at the office, not working at home. But you could totally imagine that people will end up doing that kind of stuff of just going, cool, whether I'm in Australia or Asia, doesn't really matter. But the, bottom, the point I'm going to make is I was looking for well, what kind of trends would we see on this? I'm like, co-working space is a great trend. The volume of co-working spaces that have opened, it's dramatically cut off, right? Like over the last two years, it's like non-existent. But then even ourselves, we had a WeWork space in Collins Street, Melbourne, and they were completely closed down. And so we actually got moved to a completely different WeWork. And then I've just read the Victory offices in Sydney closed four Sydney CBD offices, and so to add to your speculation, is this the rise of satellite CBD offices? Like, will these co-working spaces go out to, I don't know, more like metro areas as opposed to centralized business districts or like more rural areas to try and bring in and support those people going, you want a bigger house, you want backyard, you want all of these things? No worries, you can still come to an office, just come into this spot.
1: That is such an interesting point. That is such an interesting point. I, I'll tell you my view. I actually think it's just a period of like normalization. I, I really do. I think that when uh, the last few years happened, we had a mass exodus to work from home out of necessity. And now that I think we're pretty much considering the events of the last few years over, I'm picking my words carefully here to not uh, get in trouble with YouTube. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, did, did, I think I did right there. Yeah, that, that, was good. About, that was good. I would have like beeped it or something. Yeah, no, no, I'll take it. <laughs> anyway, the point being is I think we're going to see a normalization here. But I, I will say there's some counterpoints to this as well. Like your point on offices is huge here. So let, let's pretend that everyone went work from home in in the last few years. I think we're going to see a, a reasonable clawback. Yep. I think about half the people that went fully remote are probably going to come back into offices in some way, maybe three days a week, potentially five days a week, particularly in, in areas where teamwork and collaboration is important. But the counter I have to that is I look at uh, the research we did in our last podcast episode about how much like in in Australia in particular, government is expanding into the regions. So these are the, um, and when I say regions, I really want to clarify that. These are cities that are around a capital city, maybe within 90 minutes. Yep. So any major regional hub around a capital city. So this in Sydney would be like your Wollongong and Newcastles in uh uh, Queensland, it would be like your uh, Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast, yep. and I'd probably say even Toowoomba and things like that around, right? like all those major regions. Victoria, it's your Bendigo, Ballarat, Geelong, and Peninsula. Yep. Like I very much feel that those sectors are going to counter this a little bit as well. So I would think that you know fixing the NBN, investing more in staff there,
0: that that we're just going to go through this
1: normalisation period. And what's your view?
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I I think that this norm to your use your term, this normalization is just going to happen. And we're already seeing the leading indicators to what you've mentioned. The other thing that I that I read, which was quite fascinating, was apparently only 35% of all jobs in Australia, based on a survey, right? So I don't know how large the survey was, can be supported purely with work from home. And so that as a as a point of reference is, yep, sure, some roles you can do hybrid, whether it's three days a week in the office, two days at home, but purely just at home, 35%. And I go, okay, well, those are the people who have probably already exited CBDs and moved to sort of, to your point, more rural or like these satellite city kind of things. At the top Don't of you feel like
1: those numbers are fudged though? Because I'll give you the example, right? It's like, if some, let's say you and I, we can do 100% remote. So we go and move to a regional town, but then we build a house. The builder who is in that regional town isn't necessarily, he's not work from home. Correct. But- it's stimulated work in that economy. So the jobs that are in offices or on site in construction are in these regions now, it's like moving the jobs. It's not necessarily uh,
0: pointing at all towards being in the CBD. And I think that, and that is the point, right? Because you've got the direct workers of like 35%. And I would argue that it's probably more now, especially with the amount of people that have moved out of like hospitality, things like that with the unfortunate stuff that has happened. But then your second order consequence is also the, the supporting factor Going okay, well, now there's huge government spend on rural. There's also this increase of people going out rural, which then needs support services for what they get, like more cafes, more hairdressers, more everything to go and support them in their new location. And you're like, okay, well, now there are just these propped up cities that are just outside of just centralised business district because I can't have a backyard, I can't have a Zoom room, right? I can't have four bedrooms, five bedrooms in my house at an affordable price, et cetera, where they just don't exist anymore. I think there's another factor we're not considering here. So, I'll bring this back to business
1: and and wealth because that's uh, really what people listen to us for, Grant, not necessarily our political (laughs) geopolitical views. One day Um, we'll we'll pivot in. (laughs) I don't know. I think we're warming people, though, to the idea. One of the things I think hasn't really been brought up enough in this discussion, though, is like I, I think there's this idea that there's not more people coming into the country. So it's like if you're thinking about this, if you're investing in property, you're like, oh, no, the region's going to end now. Like everyone's going back to the city. I've just bought this regional property. Like this is a mistake. It's like I actually view this in like as we immigrate more people into the country, both are just going to fill up more. I think the idea of the region's becoming stronger and the CBD's building back is likely what we're going to see. So if your business has been smashed by uh, the recent years and you're holding strong in the city – I think you can be pretty confident that over time numbers are going to come back. I think the signs of that and like we went out for dinner the other week in the city and it was packed. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, okay. And the laneways full on like a Tuesday night. Yep. So it was really, it was nice to see, I must admit. And then on the other side, I think the regions continue to build strong. I think there's too much government spending to be there. Yep. So if you're backing that horse, I think you can be fairly confident things go well there as well.
0: So for Australian business owners who are like trying to assess how to play this. Like I know you and I are very focused on having teams <laughs> who are virtual that is all about output. Like whether they do two hours, eight hours a day, as long as they've got the quality and the output critical, right? So obviously for people listening to this, like that is a key component that you've probably already factored in over the last sort of couple of years. But if you haven't, that's exactly how we're looking at it. Um, but it's very dependent upon the type of business you run, right? Like if I've got a business that's very reliant on foot traffic, I would obviously just want to keep an eye on these trends of potentially rural rising, government spending on rural increasing, et cetera, and going, is that going to benefit my organisation or is that not going to benefit my business? For people who are uh, maybe require physical people, like maybe manufacturing or maybe uh, face-to-face services like doctors and, and surgeons things like that, right? It's more like, well, are people going to be migrating away from us or towards us? What is the lagging impact going to be? But also looking at is Apple and Tesla and Google – all forcing everybody to go back into the office because to the point that we said at the start, everyone else will just like follow them, right? So they will just say, take those big ones and go. Cool, everyone's going to come back. This is awesome. I'm almost the opposite.
1: You reckon? I think if yeah, look, let's just be real. I don't have the pull power of Google or Apple. I think people are delusional to think that they have the weight of those brands. Like you got to remember, like some people like go to university purely with the ambition of working at Apple or Google. They they don't do that to work at you know pretty much any other company, so it's like if your brand doesn't have that pulling power and you don't have that weight where it's like you know people want on their resume they worked at Google for a couple of years, I would almost uh, instill the opposite. So my personal view, if you're probably the type of business owner that listens to this, I think you want to be pushing for virtual, you want to be pushing for automation and using software. I think this is your chance where your strategic edge can be being in front of this innovation wave. I don't think trying to get people in the office is your card to play. I think you want to go – I personally
0: would run the other way.
1: I think that's the time.
0: My, my point was like if you have no choice and this tidal wave in other sectors overseas is already happening, then it's got you've got this tailwind behind you where you're not trying to coerce people to say, hey, can you please come back to the manufacturing plant? Hey, can you please come back on the job site? Robots. It's time for robots. (laughs) 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 Just 3D print all houses now. Um, But to your point, what we've always said is like those uh, automations and offshoring where you possibly can. Like uh, in the previous email that we sent out of this podcast, we said the image of the dental practice that had the Filipino in, in the Philippines as a video being displayed. What other options do you have? Because- Dude, Shadow
1: Kitchens. Yep. This is real. Like I kid you not. There's a company we I think we both use called Muscle Chef in Australia. Like they have kitchens in the middle of nowhere and just really good distributions. Yep. Like
0: um, the wave is here. Yep. And I actually think that in addition to that, more people are going to work from want to work from home. They might dabble their foot back in the office and they go, no, 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 this is not for me. <laughs> or they'll leave all these other companies that are like pushing them back into the office. And so the, the workforce increases for the people who have the ability for others to work at home.
1: I, I could see this down, right? If you if you're um, go to all the major office buildings in your city and put up signs and just go, sick of coming
0: to this joint, work here. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good billboard. We should totally put that up.
1: Who wants to sign up to sit in traffic again? Yeah. I, I'm telling you now, I, th- I think people are underestimating the pushback that's going to come when you're not
0: Apple or Google. Yep. right. Work from home is here to stay. And that's as a business owner, that's exactly where I'll be thinking. And if I'm wrapping up at least, finishing up at least, and to your point, just evaluate, automation, evaluate where your team's placed, uh, how they can work virtually, etc. That is really the key message I would probably... You gonna see a lot of news articles talking about this, but yeah, probably just look at it and go, no worries. This is how I'm going to apply it. But it's actually an interesting point because I'm going to completely pivot 180 on this challenge. I'm going to jump into the second question, which is all around the end of the financial year. It's coming up. It's about a couple of weeks away. So preparing for the end of the financial year, I have started seeing all of the YouTube ads, TV ads, billboards saying, end of financial year sale. And I don't know, you've been on an airplane and I've been on a couple of them in the last couple of weeks. Have you seen those big blue billboards of like Coinly of like, hey, have you invested in crypto? Use Coinly to go and calculate your tax.
1: I just love that marketers can find any excuse <laughs> to spend money, right? It doesn't matter if it's in a financial year, like that is the all, they're just very clever people in trying to invoke people to take action.
0: It's like, I always use them as the, oh yeah, it's. Coming towards the end of financial year. Thanks for the reminder, guys. <laughs> I don't even know if I use that to ever buy any of their products. But this is this is amongst us, 30th of June, end of the financial year, stepping into the 1st of July. My question to you, Charlie, and it's going to be a two-part question. Every single year, do you have the same process that you execute or does it change depending on the years and depending on what your goals are? And the second one is, share it to us. Like, How are you looking at this going, oh, I'm going to prepare for the end of the financial year. What are you doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I must admit, I had some very, uh, we'll call it challenging experiences with an accountant early on. Um, and basically what happened is I would go and do my tax like every July, right? I'd come in, we'd bring in the financials, um, or he had them really, it was all done over the cloud. And we'd go through things. And what used to really annoy me is he would come up with suggestions of what could have been done before June 30. <sighs> <laughs> what? And he was saying it from this idea of like, oh, you could do this this year now. And I'm like, it would have taken five minutes for you to call me and tell me this in, you know, uh, what we say like May or June prior. So we could have done things differently. And uh, it really highlighted the idea to me that if you want to do well with your financials is you absolutely need to be doing things before the year ends because you can't change the date of transactions. You cannot. (laughs) And it also makes a massive difference to the opportunities that come to you in business and in wealth, particularly. So there's some very big challenges. So yes, I absolutely have a process. So I'll I'll run you through a little bit of it here and like some of the intricacies. But um, one of the things uh, I like to do is when Q2 Uh, kicks off in Australia so that's um, we have our end of financial year mid-year for anyone that's uh, not from Australia but like when Q2 ticks off that's the marker for me that I've got three months until end of financial year so I actually start my end of financial year process then and the first thing I do is get a tax estimate based on what's happened so far so I'm like okay well this is the year we've had if we stay pretty consistent with what we've done so far what is the tax estimate look like So really making sure that we've got funds set aside, which of course we do. We set aside funds every month, but making sure that that's accurate. So when it comes time to pay the tax bill, we've got that money already set aside and it's not a surprise. Um, I think that's a huge thing to make sure of. The second thing we look at from there is depending on our goals, is there anything that may be suited to uh, either making a transaction or not making a transaction in this financial year versus the next one? And I'll give an example here. Let's say I want to buy a new car, right? It's like, well, if I also have the goal of buying an investment property, I may or may not buy that car in that financial year because it's either going to make me look more or less profitable and that might affect my ability to borrow money um, when that time comes. And again, please don't quote me on these. Speak to your accountant and financial advisors and brokers on it, but these are just like big ideas to question with your advisors here. Um, And then the next one I go into with that is also like super contributions. So uh, again, uh, super is a tax deduction, I think is the correct framing in that. So you might have the opportunity to ramp up your super contributions and bring down your tax, which is a fantastic incentive in Australia. And again, I can't speak on super. I'm not qualified to give advice around that either. But I would say that there are certainly things you can do. So that's all my like before stuff I really look at is like how do I want my financials to look, are there any purchases we want to make in this year versus next year, how is this going to affect the goals for the following and contributions and that leads me into where we are right now which I must say we're fairly on top of, we're we're all over this year nice and early. And then the other side of that is obviously doing like your – and this is more like after the June 30 type of area is where we look at, okay, well, um, is there any deductions or things that we can claim back or how do we want to make things look from
0: there? Yeah. And do you, do you stagger out the meetings that you have with your accountant? So you have an accountant meeting at the start of Q2, which is like 1st of April-ish, and then like another session before the end of the financial year and another one start of next year? Or is this uh, cool, just send me through a tax estimate – then I'm going to calculate it from here and then we'll just talk when we're going to submit all this stuff at the start of next one year.
1: Yeah, I must admit a lot of this is done via um, like email and messages these days. Yeah, awesome. uh, I'm less meetings. I will say I have a very uh, good relationship with my accountant. So do you, Anthony. Shout out to Anthony. Um, so one of the things that's fascinating is because we talk so often, I feel like there's less need for as many meetings as I used to have or formalize. Yep. We definitely will have at least one. But um, we've kind of become good friends along the way as well. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that this is something everyone does. But I would think at the very least is like you could probably send an email to your accountant and say, hey, this is the list of things I'm looking to understand. Yeah, Give them the email first so they can do some research and stuff and be prepared. Then have a meeting. So at least that's a more productive meeting. That's what's been a good process for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So- Mine's very similar. Uh, I'm probably a little bit more delayed in how I approach it. I'm all looking at like the middle of May is when I start sort of pulling everything together, uh, going, cool, what is the tax estimates? I do exactly the same thing around um, like the the structure that I have is uh, the company's in a trust, which means that I can't store the cash in the trust. I always have to to distribute distribute it at the end of the year. So I start looking at the distributions of saying, okay, well, Um, how's my wife's salary? How's my salary? Um, Is there any other family members that we can distribute to? All those kind of things to actually say, cool, what is going to be the best use of this? Whilst then also looking over, well, what are we thinking about doing from a macro perspective, like an overall perspective next year? So are we looking to try and increase borrowing power? So in that case, we might increase our income. Um, Are we not looking to acquire any more assets, which means to your point, we might go and push more into superannuation or we might try and buy an asset or something like that now. Um, and just trying to evaluate all of those things before, obviously, it comes up to the end of the financial year and I've got, oh my gosh, it's one week. What am I going to buy? What am I going to buy? But it's, it's interesting talking to other business owners about this because most people seem to be reactive of saying, oh, I'm going to go down to Officeworks and buy a new laptop, or I'm going to go do these things because I've got some cash in a bank account, right? And it just, it's nothing. I've never really done that outside of some maybe things that are like a couple hundred bucks, like, I need a new this, I need a new that. You know what, I'll, I'll go and purchase it because it's the end of the financial year. But I've never used that and never used the sales that other companies have had as like an end of financial year strategy. Like, it's not like, oh, what, are going to go buy new desks and chairs and everything like that? Are we going to like wrap it all I'll up? I'll tell
1: down? you what, I've never met anyone who's been wealthy based on trying to make end of tax year <laughs> purchases. Well, that was their secret. Like in June, what they did is they made all their purchases. <laughs> yeah. It is It is nice, though, that you can get the uh, refund back, right? So if you are going to make a purchase, being able to uh, claim that and get it back quickly is, I think, a really important thing. So like that side of it is nice. But on the other side of it, I, I, will, I will share just a couple of things that um, if you're a little bit more prepared here, one of the things i found interesting is that let's say you've got a year where you really want to make your earnings look fantastic. like. To potentially go to your clients and say, hey, if you want to prepay for the next six months of services, we'll give you a 10% discount. Like you can actually bring forward revenue into a financial year if you wanted to. Or you can potentially push back revenue. Like there are strategies around this which I don't think many business owners take advantage of. Yeah, And if you're strategically going to sell plant and equipment or property or whatever it is, that can have huge upsides or ramifications as well. And I would make the argument that I think there's not enough high quality conversations going on with business owners and their accountants to plan for this stuff. And you can often end up in a circumstance that could have been better, which was what happened to me many years ago.
0: Yeah, and you touched on a really interesting point. I was going to actually ask you about how you tactically sort of apply this inside the business as well. Um, So for myself with software companies, like we do a lot of and have a lot of conversations around amortization, which is kind of like your depreciation. And going, okay, what's this going to impact? Because we get um, quite a bit of like government grants for research and development and all of these things as well as export grants for bringing in cash overseas back into Australia by selling to overseas companies. Um, All of these kind of the way the books look and the way that we depreciate and amortize actually impact our ability to go get other grants as well. And so in our business, we will actually look at a lot of the things that you're talking about to say, is there an invoice that we can charge now? Can we give any incentives for them to – they don't necessarily need to pay it now because we we do accruals-based accounting, not cash-based accounting. So how can we go and push out some of these invoices because we might want to do X, Y, and Z in the business to get like a grant. So we might want to have another million dollars worth of revenue in the business this year because it's going to unlock a better export grant or a better R&D grant next year. Is there someone we might recruit this year – because again, when we go and do a government grant, it actually gives us a little bit when we do it next time. So your point around like services, agreements and contracts might not be like a big thing that people are thinking about now. It's actually something that I talk about within sort of one of my businesses at the end of every financial year to say, how can we go and get these re-signs? The interesting thing is that we also do is re-forecasting and evaluating previous budgets. So for the previous financial year, what did we think we were going to make in revenue? What do we think we're going to make in profit? And how far off were we? And what does that set in place for next year? Which for us with personal wealth, it might be what assets you're going to buy, what cash flow might you get from your properties or your investments, et cetera. But from a business perspective, it's okay, cool. Typically revenue, expenses and net profit. And what are we going to start forecasting for so that we can build something to execute against as well? Yeah, you
1: bring up even another really interesting point there is like we've largely spoken about this in the idea of like business. But I think if you look at your investments as well, this is huge. So for myself, like I treat my property portfolio like a business and like you do, you have to pay tax and all the things that come with it. Like if you had a particularly profitable year, maybe this is the year you want to buy a land banking project because you've got the uh, revenue to offset it against noting that that could bring down your tax potentially. Or maybe this is the year where you've taken a loss and you actually want to sell something that's been really profitable so you can offset that loss. Like I think they call that tax loss harvesting as well. There's so many unique strategies here. And I, I again, just don't want to tread on the line of financial advice. But I think that a lot of people can take advantage of these in a huge way.
0: Yeah. And one of the interesting points that I, I wrote down was Uh, So I have a bookkeeper for obviously my main business as well as we've got bookkeepers for the other companies. But they actually do my personal bookkeeping, which is the properties and sort of what Hazel and I spend and all these things. And I had a call with him two days ago to actually say, hey, make sure that every single thing has been lodged and we've got this Google sheet that we track everything in. Uh, We used to use zero on it as well. And say, Every line item must be attributed to an expense against a a certain property or against Hazel and myself for education, for learning um, and all these different things. Because when I go back to my accountant at the end of the year to do my personal tax return, Hazel's personal tax return, but also us as a collective, everything from a personal expenditure is there, not just from a business expenditure, right? And so having them all kind of collated and put together in preparation for that end of financial year is key. Because it's not like you're trying to scramble and submit everything. You already have it all listed in order for you to say, this was what I made from this property. This is what I made from this property. This is what I made from crypto, from shares, etc. Here it is. How are we going to approach this? Yeah, I would like to think someone listening to this
1: show doesn't need that tip. Like I would like to think that (laughs) anyone who listens to this show is already on board with the idea of, hey, I've got to track my stuff monthly and keep records of everything
0: already. You would hope I have had multiple conversations to which... I feel as though not everybody has received this message. Okay, well, this is the message. <laughs> but is there anything else uh, that you do? Like we spoke about like macro from a business perspective and a personal pers- perspective. We've spoken about wealth from a how would you play it for what you're planning on doing next year and the previous years. We've talked about like tactical things in the business, whether it be signing new contracts, whether it be buying a couple of little assets. Is there any sort of incidental things that you just like, you know what, Australian business owners, think about this. This is what I've learned of. Here are some tips and tricks or anything like that. But you reckon it's, it's all kind of methodical in that sense.
1: Yeah, I'll bring it in. So monthly tracking, right? I think if you are at monthly record keeping as well, right? So staying on top of things throughout the year, I think is massive. And uh, I'm a big advocate of putting money aside for tax throughout the year. It's not something you get to the year and get a surprise on. I think having a good process in the quarter before The end of financial year is probably, you know, point two, like get that list, get that tax estimate, start thinking about how your financial year and records could look in relation to your goals and then come up with a plan with your accountant. Like this isn't something, this is a methodical uh, process. This is a strategic thing. This isn't a tactical game when you're coming to your financials, you want to play this. And noting like if you don't play this as a long game, you can really mess this up. So, if you bring forward a ton of revenue into this financial year, noting you've got works to deliver in next financial year where you've already taken that revenue, that has effects for the following. Correct. So, having a great account, communicating well with them, making sure they know your goals, all these things we uh, reference heavily here, I think are just such the big takeaways.
0: In summary, this is not just compliance. 100%. <laughs> this is the whole other side. <laughs> this, is, this is how real business owners play this game. Um, but telly, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this on up, up. I love the end of financial year points. It's always something that I think too many people just underappreciate. Um, but for anyone listening, be sure to go and tune into our future episodes. And if you're not already, please make sure that you're on the newsletter. It's designed to enhance your full stack of skills to build wealth inside and outside of your business. So head over to fullstackbusinessowner.com forward slash newsletter, putting your details and we'll email you every single time we come out with a new episode. And thank you again for joining us on the next episode and see you actually on the next episode of Full Stack Business Owner.